0: Welcome back to the PFC Podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back to the PFC Podcast. This is Dennis and today I'm with Evan and today we're talking about something that's not really uh, explicitly stated in the 10 core capabilities, but it's kind of implied is planning. How are you doing today, Evan?
1: Good, glad to be here.
0: Perfect. So, you had uh, created a presentation for your guys, and I was hoping that you would be willing to uh, do the same presentation here. Uh, And you agreed. So, um, if you wouldn't mind, uh, start off with just maybe a quick introduction to yourself, and then we can just roll into the presentation.
1: Sounds good. So, hey, guys, uh, I'm Ethan Baines. I'm currently the 2nd Battalion, 3rd Group uh, Battalion Surgeon. I'm an emergency medicine doctor. And back when I was a real soldier, I used to be an 18 Delta and 5th Group. And I created this presentation because we're not doing a very good job in terms of our medical planning. And I've seen this in a deployed environment. And I've seen this in a garrison environment that the medical plans are uneven, to say the to say the least. So I went looking. At first, I started getting really frustrated about it because I kept on seeing all these bad med plans. And then I realized that guys just really weren't getting trained on it very much. What little opportunity you get to train on this concept in the course is done very, very quickly. And you don't have a lot of time to work through it. So what is... The stuff that I want to talk about today. I want to talk about, I like to use the term medical contingency planning because I think it's a nice, broad, overarching umbrella. Um, We're going to talk about the principles of medical contingency planning, uh, risk assessment, and resource identification. We're going to talk about the idea of a PACE plan versus something that I prefer, which I call proportionate redundancy. We're going to talk about phases of evacuation And, you know, I'm going to kind of talk through a little bit about some medical plans, um, some examples that are hypothetical. Does that sound pretty good, Dennis?
0: You do whatever you like.
1: <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we're gonna do we're gonna start out with our our definition here. So medical contingency planning is an inclusive effort to mitigate risk by preparation for response to medical emergencies throughout all phases of care and evacuation. So what do I mean by that? That means we're planning for everything from what goes in our ruck truck house plane all the way on through you know, figuring out what kinds of trucks and houses and planes we're going to be using, um, scouting out what kind of resources are available to us. It's overall really thinking through from beginning to end, from when the casualty takes the, becomes ill or takes an injury, all the way on up through definitive care. And so I'm going to give you some principles that I think are important for medical contingency planning. Um, First and foremost is no amount of austere care is likely to be more effective than a timely and safe evacuation to definitive care. The next principle. Your primary plan should always be able to manage the most likely number and type of medical emergencies in your risk assessment. However, the sum of all of the planned capabilities that you have should always be able to manage the most dangerous scenario you can think of. Next principle. The amount of redundancy for any part of your medical plan should be proportionate to its criticality and its likelihood of failure. Next, you will be unable to lift an aid bag adequately packed to handle any emergency you might face. Uh, Moving on, uh, because helicopters defy the laws of nature, the Almighty likes to smite them often, so you should never fully rely on helicopters. Uh, Always plan for you being the casualty. And any resource or capability that has not been rehearsed or exercised will almost certainly fail in a crisis. So I went through those pretty quickly, and now we're going to talk about them in a little bit more detail. So that first principle, I said no amount of austere care is likely to be more effective than a timely and safe evacuation to definitive care. The reason why I think this is so important is we all love... To sit and think up these scenarios where, okay, my guy takes an airway injury, and like I'm gonna crank him with a a big pen and my pocket knife, and then I'm gonna improvise some sort of crazy ventilator out of some water bottles and some random tubing I have. And you kinda you can sit there and you can think up all the ways that you will either pack a bunch of crazy gear into your aid bag or come up with these heroic procedures that you might do in a crisis. And look, that's what we train for. It's what our you know, meat and potatoes and special operations medicine is doing all of this amazing stuff. But what I find is people spend so much time sitting and thinking about all of the stuff that they could do, like, how how am I going to manage, you know, blast lung in an austere environment for three days? Meanwhile, guys are not really putting in nearly as much effort into thinking about how am I going to make sure I'm not sitting on this guy for three days? So I just think it's important to point out that most of the time, getting the patient to an appropriate level of care quickly is probably the most important intervention. Even myself as an emergency medicine doctor in the in an ER, if I have a trauma patient come in, honestly, more important than doing any sexy airway management or anything else is usually just making sure that that patient can get to the OR with a minimum of interruptions, um, just properly resuscitated to get there is probably the most important part of my job. So. Anyway, that's just something that I think guys really underestimate how important this is. And it's probably the most important intervention that we have to offer for a seriously injured or ill person is getting them evacuated quickly and safely. So where do we start coming up with a plan for that? So it starts with a risk assessment. What you need to do, just like almost anything else we do in the military, we need to sit down and do a threat assessment. And we need to look at what is it that we're going to be doing? Where are we going to be doing it? What is the climate there? What are the endemic disease risks? What are the you know, threats of enemy action? What types of weapons are they using? Are we looking more at small arms or blast, that kind of things? Or are we looking at a car accident in traffic on adjacent? Um, And then you also need to look at if any of your people have pre-existing conditions, because we still do have those even in the special operations community and whether any of those people have medical risks. So how do you start to do that? Well, obviously, if there's somebody who has been there before, that's your, your most ideal option is talking to them first. And then, you know, any sort of PDSS is going to be. You know, high yield and very valuable in terms of figuring this out. Um, If you don't have the luxury of that, or if you want to augment those capabilities, which I would encourage you to do, you should start looking at resources that range from, you know, your battalion and group med. So your PrevMed people can provide um, risk assessments for areas. Uh, for health threats. Uh, There are resources like the CDC Yellow Book, the Department of State has a travel guide where you can look up what what sorts of things are going to be a threat there. Um, The one that I'm going to plug really, really hard is Shoreland Travax, which a lot of you guys don't know or have never used. Shoreland Travax is a commercial product that specifically produces Um, basically risk assessments and area surveys that uh, will go into everything from what types of malaria are specifically present in certain areas of the country. Uh, They also send out medical personnel to do surveys of hospitals all around the world. And they do professional in-person surveys and will tell you things like, okay, is this hospital in this part of Africa or Asia or wherever providing Uh, a high quality of care comparable to the rest of the developed world. So you can really get very quickly a good idea of what's going on health-wise and health resource-wise in a country, especially if you're going there as part of, you know, again, a JASIT or something where you're not falling in on an existing medevac system that's well-developed. Obviously, there are are some classified resources, too. Um, and I'm not going to talk about those because of the, the venue. But you should be looking at that as well. But Shoreland Travax will get you a lot of the way there most of the time. And as Department of Defense, we have CAC-enabled access to it. So if you can go to Shoreland Travax with a CAC-enabled computer, uh, you can log on for free and get tons of really good information. So I'm putting that out there. I think I have no affiliation with them. But I think it's a really excellent way to start getting a country assessment done for when you're going someplace. And the nice thing is where you're doing this risk assessment, like as should be obvious from what I was just saying, you're already starting to identify your assets as well. You're starting to figure out, OK, what's the EMS system like in the place where I'm going, if, if any? Um, what are the hospitals and are there any hospitals that I would feel comfortable using or sending my guys to? Um, and so you're kind of accomplishing two things at the same time there. And really, especially uh, the hardest part of this kind of planning is when you're going on a mission like Adjacent. Because if you're falling in on an existing rotation in, you know, a, whether it's a combat zone or, you know, a highly uh, developed operational rotation, usually there's going to be some sort of framework there that you can fall in on. But many times when you're traveling to these other countries for J sets or other short term missions, there may not be anything. And you need to figure out very quickly, what is what are your limitations? Do they have EMS? Do they have hospitals that are safe enough that you would consider for your people? Um, you know, do we have any uh, U.S. or NATO assets that could support and provide timely medevac? Um, so really looking at that and being candid with your command team. I think one thing that it, we really shoot ourselves in the foot is we we want to get a go we want everything to be green in our uh, you know our mission briefings all all of the little check boxes should be green lights and not red lights and so we want to make everything look good and I think that's a real problem with med planning, that we need to be candid with our our commanders and make it clear to them when we're going someplace where it's like, look, I'm going out, you know, our, our team, our detachment, our, you know, platoon, whatever it is, is going to this place. And we are going to be, you know, alone and unafraid for probably at least 48, 72 hours. And there is nothing providing a quality medevac in that time. And there are no hospitals or doctors or resources. And that's the risk you're assuming. Um, I think when we're not honest with our command teams who are not automatically gonna have that insight into what we're getting into, then I think we can get into real trouble. So being candid, that's also the opportunity to ask for more resources when you say, look, we, you know, this is, we're going out to this really remote spot and we're not going to have any uh, kind of medevac in a timely fashion. There aren't any host nation assets that we feel comfortable using. We, maybe we need to plus up our medical capabilities, whether it's, that's in terms of equipment, personnel, or even other units to be able to do this safely. Um, as you're doing this, some uh, like specific things that you should be thinking about. Um, so when you're thinking about trauma, obviously the, probably the first thing that you should be identifying is if trauma is one of your major concerns when you're going to travel someplace as it usually is in the military, uh, we're concerned about where's the blood and where's the surgeon. And that should be kind of very much at the front of any kind of assessment that you're trying to do is okay. How long would it take to get my patient to, Uh, you know, quality, reliable blood products that I feel comfortable with. And then how long is it going to take to get them to at least a general surgeon that can stop bleeding in the box and deal with things that I don't have the ability to handle on my own. So those should be... You know, top of your list, but other things that you might want to think about, uh, specifically things like spine and neurosurgical coverage, um, especially if you're worried about falls, like you're operating, you're doing fast roping or anything with aircraft, um, knowing where that is specifically is something that's very, very useful so that, you know, you can have orthospine or neurospine. Um, Neurospine will also be able to do things like decompressive hemicranies, Um, In some places you may go for head injuries, um, you may also want to consider that some trauma uh, physicians are also able to deal with some, perform at least some basic uh, decompressive procedures. For example, um, by doctrine, most of the French uh, trauma surgeons get some training in decompressive hemicraniectomy. So knowing where that kind of capability is may be very important to you. Uh, Some other things, depending like if you're diving, obviously you need to know where your chamber is. Um, If you're going out in the brush where there's a lot of bad snakes, knowing where anti-venom might be, Um, knowing where extraction equipment would be available, if that's going to be a concern. And also in our modern, you know, joyous COVID world, uh, things like isolation equipment. Because depending on what sort of medevac you're relying on, if you have a patient that's known or suspected to have COVID, they may not be willing to fly them unless you have some ability to isolate the patient prior to transport. And they make commercial products that are almost like the, you know, the chamber bags that they get people off mountains with to isolate um, but some of those have limitations. I can tell you um, in Africa, at one point there was a casualty we were trying to evacuate and we had one of those, but uh, it only fit a person who was six foot one or shorter. And the casualty was six foot two and going to be transported for you know the better part of a day. So that caused real problems for us. So thinking through those kinds of specialty products at that point is also useful. So I'm not going to beat the risk assessment itself over your heads. You all have done a risk assessment um, and know the Army risk assessment matrix and all of that. But what I encourage my guys to do is I take that and break it down into most likely and most dangerous, just like we do when we talk about, you know, our mission planning. And so what do I mean by that? So most likely we're talking about both type of casualty and number of casualties. So If you are saying that the most likely thing that could happen to your team is going to be a car accident, like the most likely thing of any significance uh, while you're out, my next question is going to be, well, how many people are in the car? So that tells that gives you how many casualties that you have to be planning for in your most likely scenario. Um, Now, if your most likely scenario is just, you know, hey, one dude sprains an ankle or something, then okay, you've got one casualty and it's a sprained ankle and you just need to make sure you have splinting equipment. Um, But the, again, taking things like the car example, or if you're flying around in aircraft, so the most dangerous, if you're doing anything with aircraft, your most dangerous scenario is that helicopter makes a hard landing or something like that. And we're not talking about planning for death by meteorite here. I want to be very clear on this, that You know, there comes a point where if you're trying to plan for every possible eventuality and you're saying, well, okay, what happens if, you know, one of the other great powers does a suitcase nuke on my location? Okay, that's stupid. And you can't plan for it. There's nothing that you're going to be able to um, prepare for that has any utility in that scenario. So, most dangerous, reasonable scenario is okay, we're flying around in a helicopter and it makes a hard landing. So then it's like, okay, how many people are on the helicopter? And choose a reasonable spectrum of injuries that you might expect to see from that. And that's your most dangerous scenario. And you need to sit and think through, okay, if I brought every resource that I could possibly bring to bear uh, to work on that scenario, what would I, you know, how would that work out for me? So principle two is that your primary plan should always be able to manage your most likely number and type of medical emergencies, and the sum should always be able to manage the most dangerous. So imagine now, your whether it's your PACE plan or however you want to visualize that kind of contingency planning, mm-hmm. you need to say something like, OK, my primary plan is I'm going to use this FLA and I can fit you know six casualties or whatever in the back of this FLA. And my most likely scenario is that car accident. And I'm only having four people per car. Um, and then you're thinking about, okay, do I have my aid backpack for that scenario and so on? And I can handle the most, most likely, um, most dangerous, you know, again, I'll, I'll give you a, a hypothetical. So you're pulling jump coverage and you're saying, okay, my most dangerous scenario is a whole chalk of jumpers that gets hung up in the trees all with varying degrees of injuries. So you need to think about, okay, how many people are in that chock of trees? Well, shoot, that may be more people than I can fit on my FLA. So what does that mean I need to do in order to be prepared for that kind of eventuality? And that may not mean, I'm not saying that you need to bring out you know two FLA's to everything. It's that, okay, now we've taken a really excessive number. It's not something that we expected, but it's something that we did consider. So now if we're bringing in all the ambulances and calling in all the troops in our backup plan, can we manage every possible uh, or, you know, every one of those casualties in that scenario? So as we build these plans, um, I don't love the concept of pace plans and here's why. Because four is an arbitrary number and four of what? So guys will say, oh, you need a medevac pace plan. What does that mean? Does that mean that we need four platforms in one hospital facility? Does that mean we need a mix of two, you know, two vehicles and two hospital facilities that we're going to be evacuating to? And if you mix those up, you get a total of four possible permutations. Um, I think that. It's both arbitrary and it's not descriptive enough of what you need. The concept is sound. I Because at the end of the day, the more redundancy you build in, the less likely, if you've ever seen like the Swiss cheese model of system failures, when you line up all the holes, well, the and, you know, when the holes line up just wrong, that's when bad things happen. Um, well, the more different slices of cheese you have there with differently aligned holes, hopefully, the less likely it's going to be that you're going to have that catastrophic failure. So obviously, you never want a single point of failure. But how do we create this idea of the the right amount of redundancy in the right places? And that's principle three, which is the amount of redundancy should be proportionate to its criticality and its likelihood of failure. So we'll start with an easy one. If you're doing a training operation in the continental United States, I think it is blatantly stupid and a waste of your time to have four hospitals on your medical plan because the chances that, well, under almost any scenario, because the chances that you're going to lose a even one major U.S. medical center, it's just highly unlikely to happen. You might run into a scenario where you can't get to one of them, so you may need a second one. I tell my guys that, under almost no circumstances do I need four. Usually I don't even need three. Most of the time I tell them two, depending on what the, the risk is and what the type of thing that they're doing. And in many cases for low-risk stuff, I tell them one hospital is fine. Because as a general rule, hospitals in the United States don't just go away. Now, you might go someplace where it is more likely that you would lose access to a facility. And at that time, you need to look and say, okay, well, this is a very, very important part of my plan. And you know, there is a reasonable reasonable chance either I can't get to it or it may be rendered unavailable due to some other reason. But that has to do with how likely it is to fail in your plan. Now you need to look at every single phase of your plan from, you know, you start from point of injury and you go from You know, again, it's like the ruck, truck, house, plane kind of model. And you need to think everything from your medical equipment for responding. Like, okay, how likely is that to fail? Well, what if I'm the casualty and I get blown up and I'm the only one carrying an aid bag? So you need to sit and think about how much redundancy do I need in terms of cross-loading my medical equipment. And then vehicles. So you need to think about if you're saying that we're going to self-evac on our MRAP or whatever kind of vehicle we're using you need to think about the cross load and how many casualties can you fit on it and you know how likely is it that you know if you have how many vehicles do you have and how likely is it that you're going to lose one or more um, because the amount of sort of vehicles for ground evacuation that you need, again, is going to be proportionate to the likelihood that one of them gets disabled, damaged, or is unable to support the number of casualties that you're anticipating in one of your scenarios. Um, Obviously, things like aircraft, they tend to fail all the time, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, So you generally want more. So you look at every step in this process from point of injury to how are you going to get that patient to whatever your initial stabilization site is going to be. Um, you're going to look at things like, you know, your helicopter landing zones. If you're using that, your vehicles that you're using to get to said points, you're looking at your air evacuation, your DCR sites. If you're using something like that, um, and whether that's separate from a DCS site, that's damage control resuscitation and damage control surgery, um, and airport vectors, and then, you know, Stratovac options. You're looking at every phase of this and saying, how much redundancy do I need? How important is this? You know, how critical would it be if it failed? And, you know, how likely is it that for whatever reason, this isn't going to work the way I planned it out? So starting at point of injury, you're like, okay, so do I have everything that I need to stabilize the casualty initially? And, You know, how do I balance that line between preparedness and portability? Because that's the principle four that I talked about, that you can go over the top on this of trying to plan for every eventuality by packing another piece of gear in your aid bag until you're basically carrying an ICU on your back or you're trying to load an ICU in the truck and you know your Bravos are getting mad at you because you're saying we need to carry less ammo because I need more medical equipment. Um, so you need to balance the idea of preparedness with the fact that you're not going to be, you just need to accept the fact that you're not going to be able to have everything you would ever possibly want in an aid bag uh, right there with you, but balance that with the knowledge that we're doing a good job of our medevac planning so that we can offset that because we're going to try to get the patient out and not be dependent on the aid bag unless we absolutely have to be, and only in so much as we need for that initial stabilization. So you know moving on as far as that initial it's like how many casualties can we fit i you'd be amazed at how often i've run into you guys saying well we're going to use these vehicles um, to get people out and they haven't even planned out like how or rehearsed how they're going to load a litter on the back and you know or or then they'll they've got these you know whether it's pickup trucks or whatever and they're saying okay we're going to use this i'm like well how many casualties can you fit on that well well one casualty one litter casualty and it's like well You know, if the most likely thing is a motor vehicle accident, you've got two people riding in a car, then you know, somebody's gonna get hosed there. So really thinking that through is super important. And thinking through also things like the redundancy of vehicles from a standpoint of of cross loading. So if you're going to a place where you're driving civilian vehicles, and you're one of the biggest threats in many of these you know sort of developing world places is the drive you know, drivers there are crazy, and there are no traffic laws, and traffic accidents a major concern. Part of your medevac planning should be looking at how many how many vehicles and how many people per vehicle because if you're trying to cram like let's say you've got a 12 man ODA and you're trying to cram them into two you know vehicles that can hold six people apiece and then one of them gets into a traffic accident there's no way to cross-load that. So from a med and contingency planning standpoint, having fewer people per vehicle with more excess capacity for cross-loading is part of your med plan and needs to be thought through and at least mentally rehearsed, if not physically rehearsed. And so then you get to, we, we get to the helicopters now. So helicopters just break all the time or they can't fly. Um, And that was why I made principle five just gave it its own thing out there that if you're if you're planning on being dependent on rotary wing support for your medical evacuation, um, the chances of you having a bad day or your casualty having a bad day are very, very high. So you really need to build that in. Uh, to your plan that you need to have a good long hard look at what is actually going to happen not on paper um but like in the, if you really had to you know bring it to bear what would you do if you couldn't get the rotary wing to, to bring you out i've seen medical plans where guys literally said that they were going to drive halfway across the continent of africa if they're initial air evac didn't work out. It's like, did you actually calculate how long of a drive that is? Because Africa's kind of big. Um, so really taking a hard look at what happens when a helicopter becomes unavailable in your plan. Obviously, you need more redundancy there. That's a place where, and not just redundancy in terms of number of helicopters, but if you have four helicopters that are all launching from the same facility, and then there's a sandstorm at that facility, that's a problem you've got a single you've identified a single point of failure so just because you have multiple aircraft if they're all launching off of the same runway or landing zone then there may not be as much redundancy there as you think so aggressively seeking out those single points of failure is going to pay dividends in terms of your plans going the way you hope they will so now again, we talked about sites, and so you know your DCR, your resuscitation sites, and your surgical sites. Those are usually going to be more reliable. Um, what are the scenarios where they're not going to be reliable? Um, if you have a single provider there, that's a, that's potentially a problem because what happens if your surgeon gets COVID? Or, you know, there's some other medical emergency where one of your critical personnel. So that's something that could potentially cause a site to go black. Um, Weather conditions is probably, again, especially a lot of the places we go in the military um, where the site is fine, like the surgeons there, the OR is fine, but there's a sandstorm and no aircraft can get to it. Um, But other ones, I mean, political conditions, like if you're planning on evacuating to something on an airfield and that airfield could get closed due to any kind of political instability or what have you, you need to consider that sort of issue making your, your sites unavailable. And any other reason, you know, if you're talking about ground evac, you know, ground condition, washed out bridges, um, your imagination is your limit here. And the more you can envision about potential bad things going on, um, the better. A good med planner, a good medic, and, you know, a good uh, ER doctor, PA, in my mind, is somebody who has a morbid imagination. Um, Somebody who can sit and really think, wow, this, you know, what would happen if this This scenario came to pass. So for those of us who are traveling to the developing world, I think one of the most important things to consider is we need to be honest with ourselves and our command about what we believe the capabilities of the host nation to be. And we need to look very hard at what scenario we would be willing to use those capabilities. So, and that may change when you get there. So you may do like your online assessment, whether you're looking at, you know, the the various military resources and places like shoreland traffic, and you're trying to get a sense of like, how good are these host nation hospitals? How would I use them? And then you get there and you find that they're different than you expected them to be, either better or worse. That may change. But in either case, you should have at any given time a sort of hard cut line of, In most cases, U.S. military shouldn't be getting elective procedures in any kind of host nation facility. You shouldn't be something that doesn't need to be done over there shouldn't be done. But then so, you know, you've got the belly pain and maybe you think it could be appendicitis. Um, You need to be very clear uh, whether. That meets your criteria for, you know, what I'm going to take them to the host nation hospital so that I can get them imaging. And if they they at that point, once you bring them into the hospital, you may lose a degree of control over the casualty unless you want to risk an international incident. So, you know, you need to really think same thing with EMS. It's like if you're going to even in the U.S., If you call EMS and they show up, even if you're, you know, an ER doctor, PA or whatever, it's their protocols and it's their truck. And ultimately, they may allow you to be involved, but you can't count on that. So um, once you invoke a medical resource, they may run on their own protocols and you may lose control of the situation. So you need to decide. It's like, okay, are the hospitals in this country good enough that I wouldn't want to take my guy there? But if he's bleeding to death and I had no other option, then I'd go and be clear about exactly where that line is ahead of time. Um, And then obviously you're going to need to think about things like um, your CASVAC times. How long is it going to be to get them? to both a higher level of you know US or NATO care and then you know back out to more definitive care, stratovac whether it's back to Germany or where, wherever it is. And that's going to fall into again that decision point on where's my cutoff for using host nation facilities of okay, you know if I know this guy's gonna die, if he doesn't get something done in the next 12 hours and it's going to be you know 48, that may make your decision for you. But those are hard decisions, and we're not really ever given any meaningful training on how to make that decision. And frequently when we deploy, whether as docs or as medics, we're not necessarily given a clear playbook on that that decision. And so it's probably going to be up to you to make that call, but the more you can war game it and play it ahead of time in your imagination and really work to the best of your ability to understand how good or bad the resources where you're going are. Um, You don't wanna have to make that decision. You don't wanna think about it for the first time in the heat of the moment. So I just talked kind of through a whole chain of evacuation from point of injury all the way back to uh, definitive care. And like I said, every single one of those steps um, will probably need at least some degree of redundancy. And some of them are going to need a lot more redundancy, and some of them are going to need you know, maybe less, depending on exactly what the scenario is. And that's why I think if you just think about that chain of evacuation, the concept of a pace plan is overly limited, because I think it's excessive to take every single link in that chain and try to assigned four levels of redundancy to everything. But meanwhile, in some cases, again, when you're talking about aircraft or, you know, you may actually need more than four, uh, especially if multiples of them are actually tied to one airstrip or something along those lines. So moving on, I want to reiterate as well, and this is something that our community does pretty well. Um, but as you consider this medical planning, just remember that it may be you that is the casualty. You may be the one that's injured. You may be the one that gets sick. So when you're thinking about the redundancy also, you're thinking about, um, especially if you're the only medic on a team or something like that, um, what happens? And does that change the calculus? So we getting back to that, would I use the host nation hospital question? That question may be, the answer to that may be different when you have a highly skilled 18 Delta, maybe using, you know, an RSM graduate or what have you, um, who can absolutely crush prolonged field care. If you're available, then maybe you're going to have a pretty, uh, it's going to be pretty unlikely and you're going to be pretty unwilling to use the host nation hospitals. Now, what happens if you're the casualty and you're rendered, you're incapacitated? And now it's the rest of your team and your junior Bravo is going to be the person who's going to be taking care of you. That may change the calculus. Like you may be better than that host nation hospital, but maybe your junior Bravo isn't. So that may change things. So always build that into your thoughts about this proportionate redundancy concept. So in the original presentation that I gave, I provided in the slide some sample PowerPoint, And um, we'll try to make something available maybe in the show notes. But basically, what I have set up as a starting point for at least CONUS training, because that's kind of the easy button. But it's also, in my view, uh, planning for training is training for planning. And I want to see my guys at the bare minimum be able to do a decent medevac plan for you know, CONUS training. And I have created a system where it's stratified based on risk level. So if you're talking about a low risk operation, you know, guys are just going for doing land nav or something and just walking around in the woods, then I've got a pretty low bar for the med plans. I don't want people to be trying to come up with all kinds of crazy redundancy for something where it's pretty unlikely that somebody's going to get seriously injured. So I tell dudes in that scenario that, you know, I only need one emergency department. It has to be a real ER. It can't be like an urgent care center, but I need one 24-hour emergency department. You know, I need two vehicles, two platforms. And, you know, the time I, I have everybody calculate out the time to personal recovery. So, when is whatever the evacuation asset going to be reached the casualty? And, you know, presumably along with that, a provider start resuscitating the casualty. Their time to damage control resuscitation, which is, you know, I define that as usually in, the, in CONUS, it's an ER. Um, Downrange, I think an 18 Delta is a excellent, highly skilled in damage controlled resuscitation so long as they have a blood supply available to them. Um, if he doesn't have blood, then that's going to be they're not really damage control resuscitation because that's the basic trauma resuscitation uh, capability and then damage control surgery. So. You know, for low risk, I just I don't even care if they have a surgeon in the hospital. This comes up a lot in Conus, by the way, that people think that every ER also has surgeons and everything. There's a lot of emergency departments in the U.S. where you may or may not even get a you know board certified emergency medicine physician who's running the show there. They may have no surgical capabilities and they may just be stabilizing and treating. Honestly, they may be closer even to a role one than a role two. But guys tend to have the the assumption that every emergency department has surgery and a lot of capabilities so remember that even when you're planning for conus training but then i start pushing guys as you start to increase the level of risk and training whether you're doing live fire training or airborne operations or so on i start requiring a, a higher degree of redundancy you start to have to have more vehicles more hospitals and you start to have to do a little bit more legwork of identifying things like okay you know where It's not just about okay, is there a hospital there, but is there an actual surgeon, and is the surgeon in house, and what's their response time? Um, Because that's all going to come into play. I think a lot of guys in Conus training they get fixated on the trauma center question: "Is it a level one trauma center?" Um, At the end of the day, what we care about are the capabilities, not the name. So, the a level two trauma center is going to be perfectly adequate for almost anything you would ever need in the in any kind of CONUS training, but what we really care about is do they have surgeons there? So you may have a place that doesn't have any accredited trauma capability, but they have surgeons in-house that are on call 24-7, and so that may be more than adequate to your needs. So don't get fixated on the trauma center thing, although it can be a useful shorthand for do they have the capabilities that you're going to need for your particular purposes. So... That basically wraps up how to put the plans, to kind of put them together ahead of time. But then really, if you're not rehearsing these steps, then you're never going to find the holes in your plan. Um, And what I'll say is, yes, sometimes it's unrealistic. You can't certain assets you can't activate for just a rehearsal. I get that. So at a bare minimum, what I tell you is do whether it's a tabletop rehearsal uh, or what have you you know, have some kind of rehearsal and make sure that somebody is playing for the red team because you're not going to be able to think of any contingencies or faults or problems that you haven't thought of. So, you know, if you're playing both, you know, the the red team and the blue team in that rehearsal, then probably the only things that are going to go wrong are things that you've already thought of. So having somebody else, some outsider who wasn't involved in the creation of the med plan, look at it and deliberately try to sharpshoot it and try to find like, well, what would happen if this, what would happen if this and push you to think of the things that you haven't thought of. I would consider that the bare minimum in terms of rehearsal for a med plan. But obviously, the more you can start building in the actual. Physical rehearsals, that's where you're going to get so much useful knowledge and so much experience that will come to bear if you ever actually have to execute. So I'm going to go back and just summarize these the principles that I gave you um, because I'm a big, you know, tell me what you're going to tell me and tell me and then tell me what you told me kind of guy. Um, especially in podcasts. So the principles that we talked about, no amount of austere care is likely to be more effective than a timely and safe evacuation to definitive care. Your primary plan should be able to manage the most likely number and type of medical emergencies in your risk assessment. The sum of your plan capabilities should be able to manage the most dangerous scenario. The amount of redundancy for any part of your medical plan should be proportionate to its criticality and its likelihood of failure. You're not going to be able to lift the aid bag that has every possible contingency covered. So don't try to pack everything that you could possibly imagine into your aid bag. That's why we have a multi-level contingency plan. Never trust helicopters completely. They're always going to fail. So always know what your plan looks like if the helicopters don't fly. Always plan for you being the casualty and understand that if you are hurt, that may change some of your decisions, especially in terms of what other resources you'd use. And if you haven't rehearsed or exercised it, it's almost certainly going to fail. All right, I'm going to pause there, Dennis, and see how that kind of brings me through the the presentation. Do you want to wrap anything up from there?
0: Um, No, that was real good. Um, I did have a couple things, I guess. Um, You know, you're talking about packing. Um, I'm finding that guys end up packing just more stuff, and they they don't actually go through like strategies of how to use the things they have more effectively. You know what I mean? So they don't pack necessarily smarter. They just pack more. Um, like, I think right? that makes
1: a lot of sense. I mean, what I try to do and I mean, if it is when I'm packing my aid bag, I try to be very deliberate in my head of how many casualties and I think that's something that guys don't, I try to think of how many casualties and what hypothetical injury patterns I might see. So like my primary aid bag that I have, like my truck aid bag for the last trip was built on three casualties. And it was built for three polytrauma casualties, two of them being pretty severe and one being somewhat less severe. Um, And I put in everything I would need to take care of two really messed up people. And then one slightly less, uh, less messed up. And I thought through like, okay, you know, injuries. And obviously you can't, you know, have everything, every possible injury covered, but I was like, do I have enough stuff that if I had two dudes here and they were pretty messed up and I had one guy who was maybe just needed, you know, a tourniquet and some other things, can I cover all of their injuries and all of their treatments that are needed for two dudes? Because what I think when people cram a bunch of stuff into the aid bag, one, you need the, the you know, a certain degree of redundancy and stuff, but they're putting maybe the wrong things in, yeah. like when they're just loading more stuff in. It's like you only need, you're probably only ever going to need so many cry kits in an aid bag. You're probably only ever going to need so many chest tube kits in an aid bag. Whereas you, you know, th- basic things like tourniquets and curlics, you, there's a good chance you may need more of that. Right. So, so, but I think like packing an aid bag based on an expected set of injury patterns and number of casualties is a useful mental construct to both fight against just cramming more stuff in there and also make sure you have the
0: right stuff. Right. And I mean, you're talking about, you know, rehearsals of your plan. You know, I think, you know, Obviously, you do it a refresher. You know, you're rehearsing the the injury pattern, but actually, you know, using the gear you plan on bringing, right? So, like a lot of guys say, you know, they have a crush kit and they have a burn kit and they have a TBI kit and they have a, you know, they just label off all this stuff, and you know, like they don't they don't really think about like, well, you can use the gear from any one of these to treat something else. You know what I mean? It's like it's only break only if they're in, they have a burn, right? Um, But then, you know, you look at those same Crike kits and they have, you know, a seven and a half or an eight oh tube, but they're planning on doing a Crike.
1: Incidentally, on the the Crike note, kind of a little bit of a divergence. Sure. um, Are guys being taught about female Crikes? Like, Cause the, the six O tubes that they have in their kit are probably going to be too big for a lot of female
0: right. patients. Um, I would say not specifically. Um, but at the same time, that whole like seven and a half, eight O tube for their crikes for the males, um, is not a joke. That's I, I've seen that a lot and guys are just like having to stand on the tube to try and get it in. And, um, uh, Sometimes they learn their lessons, sometimes they don't.
1: Well, that's, so that was one of the big takeaways that I got from, I just did the difficult airway course with my section. And one of the things that really struck me that I would not even thought about was they did, they gave us the, based on a, a study, the CT scan measurements of how big the cricothyroid membrane is in an adult male and an adult female. And you, there's a reason. So the six OET tube for dudes, because honestly, for most dudes, it's probably six and a half is about the the maximum, unless you want to seriously like deform the tissues and risk further damage. You know, that a six oh is about as big as you're gonna get into most adult males. You might get a little bit bigger, but not you can't count on that. Right. For females, the size is four and a half or five. Yeah. So hmm. a four OET tube is probably what you need for a female CRITE kit. And we don't really talk about a lot of the female-specific stuff, but as I see more, you know, forgetting the, the female, you know, 18 series and everything now, um, just talking about, like, enablers, if you're deploying with enablers, like, hey, hey, we have women who are deploying with us, and nobody's ever talking about, like, okay, if you had to crank a female, what size two?
0: Oh, yeah. And
1: so that, that kind of struck me. It was like, wow. I Because I'll be honest, I hadn't really thought of it either.
0: Right. Um know i see a lot of guys using the pre-made crike kits mm-hmm. um they're okay i think they those are a six Yep, um, they're a six but then they're like backup you know that the, the, the uh, et tube that they're going to cut down it's like you know a seven and a half or an eight um, Yeah. just because like bigger tube means more air which i get it but if it don't fit it's still not going to work um
1: yeah, that that ain't going to work in most of our dude, you know, even
0: the big guys. And then the other one, okay, we're talking about evaluating local facilities. Um, you know, and I guess maybe it's a two-parter, you know, falling in on a pre-made plan, you know. And usually, at least I found, I very rarely fallen in on a plan that has ever actually been tested. You know what I mean? So it's like, oh, yeah you got a flight out of Bogota or you got a flight out of here. Um, It's not a problem, but they've, nobody's actually ever tested it. If you're smart, you do the rundown of the numbers, you know, phone numbers and things like that. And you find out like companies have changed, phone numbers have changed. Like people have been running for years without actually any protection whatsoever. And they have just been lucky up till now.
1: A hundred percent that, yeah. I mean, falling on a a pre-made plan, It can be a recipe for disaster and you need to revalidate every aspect of the plan because in many cases, whether it's falling in, I mean, one of the ones that comes up a lot is I'll hear guys say, well, we're going to fall in on the embassy plan Mm -hmm. um, when they're traveling someplace. And that frequently has not been tested and troubleshot to the degree that I would want it to be. So agreed completely. I was more talking about like you're falling in on a ascent com rotation where there's right. a you know a roll two and there's a bunch of helicopters there um, and presumably there are resources that you know we have some degree of control over and can be sure about, but yeah, falling in on a plan, it can be useful because like there are people on the ground there who can give you some ground truth and, you know, you can use that as your starting point, but I would never take somebody else's plan as gospel without very thoroughly revalidating every aspect of it. If I was going to have my, you know, my buddies and my teammates and my people's lives depend on it, I'm going to revalidate every aspect of it.
0: Right. Um, And this kind of reminds me of a scenario I ran into, um, we're falling in a place we were supposed to have, you know, the golden hour, you know, one hour evac, but instead we fell in onto a new plan that had, actually it was a 24 hour evac. Um, so we're far outside of rotary wing. And, uh, you know, when I pointed this out that, Hey, like, this is a great big difference. Um, the response I got was, well, you're an 18 Delta. Uh, you're supposed to be able to hold on to people for, you know, really any injury whatsoever. I'm supposed to be able to hold on to 72 hours. So, you know, the 24-hour thing is should be good. Um, how, I guess, how do I get around that type of mentality?
1: Well, I think the first thing that you can fall back on is almost any one of the, you know." major, you know, whether it's the TSOCs um, or the COCOMs or what have you, um, any of them usually have specified personnel recovery and DCS timelines that are often tied to the level of risk of whatever it is you're doing. And so that is also something that you should be looking at as part of your med plan is understanding the rules of the game. And understanding that okay, under this scenario, when we're doing things of this level of risk, this is the bare minimum in terms of the timeline that the you know three star command is willing to accept, and that is going to dictate your medical planning in many cases um, in terms of what you sometimes, especially when you're doing. a specific operation in a place you may, when the risk level goes up, you may actually need to move resources across the chessboard to be able to support that. In part because it makes sense and you want to um, have better medevac capabilities if you're doing something of higher risk, but in part because that's a specified requirement from your higher command. So, the first place I would go if I was in that situation would say, Hey, we're doing you know operations of this degree of risk, and based on the TSOCs policy we have to have medical evacuation in x number of hours available for that so that would be the first thing i would go to and then after that if that if there isn't a policy that you can fall back on then the second part of that is going to be you know yeah there are lots of things that i can do in extremis but that is not going to be as good as a timely evacuation and I can tell, you know, I, a physician who I respect uh, a, a whole lot always says, start from the 15-6 and work your way back from there. Mm-hmm. You know, you tell people that uh, if you start with, you imagine things going wrong and something happening and that scenario, and then... You know, there's an investigation and they find out that you were told that you had to accept a 24 hour evacuation time. How do you think that's going to play out, whether it's in the press, whether it's with your higher command, whether it's with the families of the people involved? And that usually can answer that question.
0: Right. Um, the last one I had was um, yeah, you're, you're evaluating Uh, like local facilities and things. Um, Have you ever asked those local facilities for any kind of documentation on patients that they've treated prior?
1: That's a good question. And I haven't actually asked for documentation on prior patients. What I find what I've done when I was trying to evaluate these facilities or what I've instructed um, people who are doing these surveys um, under me to do is ask things about like what kind of actual training they have. And I'll give you an example. Um, There was a remote facility in a remote part of the world that shall remain nameless that um, some of my, people were trying to use as a, an evacuation site. And this site listed that they had all these crazy kinds of you know, trauma surgeons and ob and so on. And they, Honestly, a, a somewhat amazing level of capability that they were claiming on paper to have. So when we sent people there to look at it, one of the questions that we told them is to say, okay, when you say you have a trauma surgeon in this country, what what is that training like? What does that, you know, how many years of training, where did they train, things like that. And once we started asking those questions, they really didn't want to answer them. And the more we found out, the more we dug into this facility from locals, it really sounded like this was not an appropriate facility to consider utilizing for our forces. Um, they had a, some pretty epically bad outcomes uh, from what we were made to understand and nobody was willingly going there. But so when they say something like, okay, well, we've got, you know, we've got this surgical capability or we've got these surgeons it's you can learn a lot from when they describe the training and specifically where they train. So, you know, I'm a third group guy and we go to to Africa a lot. And there are some parts of Africa where they have hospitals um, usually, you know, private hospitals Where they have all of the surgeons have trained, you can look it up that they've they've all trained in the U.S. or the U.K. They've all done residency or fellowship training in those places, and if you can verify that that's the case, that you know these are physicians who trained in places like the U.S. or the U.K., then they're probably going to offer a decent standard of care. Now, there's more to standard of care than just how, you know, the training of the individual physician or surgeon, because it's a whole medical team that's involved. So I'm not trying to say that, okay, well, if they trained in the U.S., it's equivalent care. But as a quick question that you can ask that and you find that out, they're probably going to be in the ballpark of maybe something that you would be willing to rely on if you had to.
0: Yeah, definitely asking them about resources available because obviously that's going to dictate a lot of the care your patients are going to receive you have the best surgeon in the world but if they don't have any surgical gear you just have a guy hold you know hold on to pressure for you
1: yeah and you can get a lot the both the travax and some of the other resources that we have in the military can give you some pretty detailed assessments um, about what resources everything to what kind of imaging capabilities they have to blood bank and what size they have and where they're sourcing it you can find a lot of that information the tricky part is making sure that your assessments aren't stale and always whether you're using you know one a, a classified resource whether you're using you know a commercial resource like travax or any other kind of reporting one one of the most critical things that you need to do is check the data on it And make sure, when was the last time we actually had boots on the ground, somebody physically there doing an assessment? Because if it's super stale, then it's a whole lot less reliable.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, that's really all I had, Evan.
1: I I hope it's helpful. I mean, I hope this is something, like I said, it's been a real challenge with the guys. And right now, we're working on revamping. I think for Jason, it's going to be hard to make an objective criteria for what is and is not acceptable. But what we're trying to do for
0: Jason podcast, be sure to go to our website, www.polongfieldcare.org Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC podcast. Our Curry
1: boy is waiting
0: there for you.